sadly, there's not a single lawmaker in Washington, D.C. who is afraid of the outdoor industry. And if they take a bad vote on climate, they're going to lose their job. And we need to change that. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Jeremy Jones is hailed as the world's best big mountain snowboarder. He has pioneered first descents on some of the world's biggest mountains, which have been captured in over 50 snowboard films. He has been voted Best Big Mountain Rider of the Year by Snowboarder Magazine 11 times, and in 2013 was named a National Geographic Adventurer of the Year. He is also the founder of Jones Snowboard. As Jeremy Jones has traveled throughout the world's snow zone, he has watched with alarm at the ways that climate change has impacted the landscape, people, and snowpack. In 2007, Jones founded Protect Our Winters to mobilize outdoor athletes, businesses, scientists, and winter sports enthusiasts to take action against climate change. In 2013, President Obama recognized him as a champion of change for his climate activism. Jones grew up on Cape Cod, and his first forays into bigger mountains was to Vermont. I began my conversation with him by asking him to talk about the role that Vermont played in his start as a world-class snowboarder. Yeah, so Vermont absolutely changed my life. Um, My grandfather, um, we jokingly say he discovered Vermont um, because... You know, I have a big family on Cape Cod. Um, My mother is one of 12 kids. uh, My dad, one of four kids. And they have all stayed on the Cape. Mostly their siblings have stayed on the Cape. Some have made it over the bridge to Massachusetts. But point being is um, going five hours away to Stowe, Vermont uh, from Cape Cod was you know, like going to the, you know, the new frontier. And, um, and so it, and just, again, like looking at all my friends and everything, it's just, we, we call it um, just not a lot of people go over that bridge on Cape Cod. Most everyone I know still lives there, but um, my grandfather was an adventurer and my parents, then they fell in love with skiing later in life, kind of at, uh, college and and so our relationship to Vermont was my parents really excited to go skiing every weekend and they threw us in the car and um, and we had a lot of freedom up there but we my brothers and I quickly fell in love with snow and Vermont as well and I understand you got your first snowboards at Shaw's General Store in Stowe uh, which I drove by just this morning um, and that you would go and trade in your boards as you grew and and such so uh, tell us a little bit about that yeah so I was an avid uh, love skateboarding and um, and enjoyed skiing but I always dreamed of being able to um, you know go down the mountain sideways and uh, we started the first time I saw a picture of snowboarding was in Thrasher magazine which is a skateboard magazine and then um i was like oh my word this like this is this dream could become a reality um but there's obviously no snowboard industry no nothing and 
Um, I was in Shaw's general store, went down to the basement and one day there was some dusty Burton backhill snowboards in the corner and I just couldn't believe my eyes. Um, and that became, you know, that's all I wanted for Christmas. I was a good boy. Santa gave me a Burton backhill. Uh, and then we did that a really cool program where each year you could trade in your board um and you know pay extra money and get the latest one because the the snowboards were evolving really fast at that era because that was um like 86 i think and at that point it was wooden it was a wooden snowboard with water ski like hoofs like the um where you'd stick your boot in and god by 89 um we were on like proper legit snowboards what was the impact of Jake Burton on you and your life? And and just say something about who he was. Yeah, so Jake, and I actually, I'm off on my, because um, it was first allowed up the mountain at 87. So I think the first time I got on board was 82 or 83. But it hit me. Uh, so Jake Burton founded uh, Burton Snowboards. Uh, and he, you know, not only did he, um, started making these snowboards and he wasn't the original one. There was some small snowboard kind of garage manufacturers at that time, but Jake really set out to uh, build the sport and, and amongst other people, but um, it pretty quickly Burton became the number one uh, selling snowboard company in the world. They dominated the industry still do to this day. And it, hit me when Jake died um, that, you know, that board that I first got at Shaw's general store that Jake had literally built that with his own hands, drove to Shaw's general store. It was the only place in Stowe that allowed him to place his boards in the bottom of this teeny little basement on consignment. And, that is that that effort is what um you know had such a profound impact and literally changed my life so it's really emotional to um think of how much he impacted my life and and so many other people's lives so you've had this uh you know career with big mountain snowboarding some really remarkable descents and maybe i should just ask you what are the elements of your favorite descents uh or and not just descents but tours um in terms of the aesthetics the challenge which ones stand out to you as kind of being among your favorites yeah so the one like I call them, you know, trophy lines. Like my, my trophies in snowboarding are these really unique, special lines. And the ones that really stand out, um, is they're big, steep, beautiful, stop you in your tracks, um, mountains or, or lines on these, you know, dramatic mountains. Uh, and, and my goal is to get the, you know, to find and, safely walk up these you know the world's most beautiful mountains for snowboarding i like i love steep lines in deep powder um, i'm obsessed with spines for sure 
but just these dramatic, um, massive anomalies of, of snow anomalies in the mountains that, and, and to get these lines where they have enough snow, uh, they're deep snow, so you can really ride them well. It's not just about like side slipping down some dangerous line and saying that you did it, but ideally where you can drop in and really rip this line. Um, but to get them in deep snow means the avalanche danger is much higher. So the window of opportunity for a line like that to be in form, I mean, it can be a couple hours every couple years that they are, you know, have that optimal snow, but it's stable. And those are the ones that really stand out for me. Is there one in particular that you would single out as your favorite or most memorable? Um, I mean, different lines of impacted me in different ways. I mean, from a pure aesthetic um, kind of ultimate line, there's a, there's a mountain called uh, meteorite in Valdez. I, I end up, um, it really changed my life when I was 18, my first trip to Alaska, I wrote it towards the end and I was like, and, and I got dropped off with a helicopter with my brothers and, and I just did that. Um, it's this 3000 foot, perfect ramp with a nice wave on it and it's the perfect aspect and it's got this terrifying blind roll at the top um and i rode that line and was like there's my life is totally changed um and not totally changed but it confirms that this path of like snowboarding these big trophy lines um was not a fad, but rather it was how, where, you know, I set my comp, my life compass to that. And then uh, roughly 20 years later, I ended up going back and hiking it with Cody. Uh, so that was a really special one. And then I had um, in the Eastern Alaska range, uh, I was filming higher, which was the third film in this trilogy, deeper, further higher, which was my kind of evolution to foot powered snowboarding. And the day I went in there, there was a, um, we got dropped off by a plane, but, uh, that morning five, uh, there was a horrible avalanche in Loveland pass Five people, uh, passed away. And that one of them was a Jones snowboards rep, Joe Timlin. And we went to a really remote section that rarely comes into form. And it was just a trip that where the, we tried really hard, been up the mountain five or six times thought that it probably wasn't going to happen, had a miracle storm and ended up riding, uh, the biggest, it's a 3,800 foot face, um, that, ended up coming into form and I've later since become friends with a pilot in that area. And he told me he's never seen it in form since then. And that window, um, it was off the table for a couple of weeks while we were there and we, you know, we rode the line and that night the wind switched and stripped the line of snow. So it's just an example of how, um, you know, rare these opportunities are just to be able to know when the mountains open up and are safe. And when they say you need to leave, uh, is really the, the crux of what I do in the mountains. As you now have a family, uh, kids, you're getting older. How does your, um, acceptance of risk in particular, as it relates to avalanches, um, how does that, how has that changed? Well, 
my new favorite sta- statement is if it's not a screaming yes, it's a no. Uh, so I think it's easier for me to back off of lines. Uh, and, and I don't have this weight of like, I got to go hit the gnarliest line in the best conditions and rip it as hard as possible. It's kind of like I'm out there all the time. I'm comfortable with low angle powder, but I do see when those windows open and, um, and it's funny cause in some sense I'm like, yeah, I don't have the appetite for what we would call the sharp end. And, um, but yet, you know, last spring I rode one of the most serious lines I've ever ridden. And, but that just, it fell on my lap. The conditions were so perfect. I was like, there's, I have to go ride that line. So what, what, I, where that, was that? That was in, um, the Fairweather range in Alaska and that will, um, be they'll be in a film coming out this spring that hasn't officially been released so you've heard it here first uh okay (laughs) um well let's turn to your activism in 2007 you founded protect our winners why did you i won't say turn from riding to activism but add activism to what you're doing yeah, I mean, I was seeing changes in the mountains uh, that coincided with what scientists were telling me. And and my, you know, that my life is, revolves around winter and snow. And so when I hear that winter is in jeopardy, uh, and at that time I had a voice in the industry, I know the kind of the key players at that time. It was like the editors of the snowboard mags and you know, just kind of how the industry worked and it just, um, and I wanted to start giving back. I had, my name was on a lot of products at Rosignol and I wanted to take a percentage and put it towards climate change, but I struggled with finding a group that I could relate to. And, um, and that's when a friend, uh, who had ties to the Surfrider foundation was like, you know, you need to start something. And that was not what I I didn't like that answer. I tried to talk myself out of it uh, for two years. And in 2000, it was actually in 2005, I'm like, all right, this needs to happen. Took me two years to figure out how to launch a um, nonprofit. And, uh, but that's how Protect Our Winter started. What does your background as a snowboarder and a mountaineer how does that inform your activism? How are you any different when you talk to somebody than, you know, a climate activist? Well, I am, uh, you know, my, to, to safely walk up these really serious mountains and snowboard them down them in optimal conditions, I have a, I need to have a really intimate uh, understanding of conditions and weather and, and what have you. So I, I think, um, I mean, that's why I didn't need to go and watch a movie to, to know that the mountains were changing. And I think just that first hand, uh, experience of, of seeing it and seeing something that is my life is focused around. Um, you know, I just was, and, and the, and the, Reality is the reason why I am a professional snowboarder, have a successful business is because the industry has supported me and they have given me this platform. So to not use that platform to try to 
help the long-term health of this sport and world that we love um, just seems selfish. Do you think that the outdoor industry has done enough in climate activism? No, I, I absolutely do not think the outdoor industry has done enough. I mean, I think we're seeing a nice trend of like embracing um, recycled materials and organic stuff. And, and just, I think our products are getting made cleaner, um, which is nice. And that's because consumers have rewarded companies that have done that. But, um, the reality is, is we're not going to recycle our way out of the climate crisis. And the, um, the exciting thing is that the outdoor industry is bigger than the extraction industry, bigger than the pharmaceutical industry, but we do not carry the same weight with our lawmakers as those industries. And we really need a unified voice that says, if you are not doing everything in your power to get us on a clean energy future, embracing the technologies, then we are going to find someone to represent us that will. And sadly, there's not a single lawmaker in Washington, D.C. who is afraid of the outdoor industry. And if they take a bad vote on climate, they're going to lose their job. And we need to change that. You're tra traveling around the country now talking about climate change. These travels are going on at a moment of intense political division. What are you finding when you're trying to talk to people and, you know, in areas where they're skeptical that climate change even exists? Well, it's the the conversation has changed. And, and so at Protect Our Winners, we focus on what we call the outdoor state, where there's 50 million people that um, the outdoors is a central part of their life. And we focus on the outdoor state because if we could come together as the outdoor state and say we demand clean, you know, we want a clean energy future, then we would be the most powerful voter block in the world. For example, the NRA is basically made up of three million really avid, um, loud activists, and they wield a ton of power. Uh, but what I find when I travel the um, around and and talk to um, my focus is really on the outdoor state and specifically these people who their life identifies with the outdoors but they um, they vote for climate deniers at every chance they get and and um, and the reality is is when I do talk to them it's not nearly as divisive as say the news makes it out to be uh, I generally, there's so much we agree on, meaning, you know, I'm, you know, hiking a mountain and watching a sunset going, how beautiful is this? We're the luckiest people in the world or how good is this snow? Da, 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 da. So um, there's so much we agree on, but because climate is now lumped in with identity politics, the reality is these people would love to vote for a climate champion, but there's no way they're going to switch from the red team to the blue team, because that means, you know, maybe, you know, one of these guys was a hunter. He's carried a gun every day of his life since he was 18 on his hip. And he's like, yeah, climate change is real. Of course it is. But if I vote for this climate champion on team blue, then um, they're going to take my gun away. And, um, you know, so it just gets caught up in all these other um, issues. 
Do you feel like you can break through that? Or have you ever broken through that? That tribal politics is, you know, it's a really high wall to get over. So one, like, what we really need is if if climate change can be a, a top one or two issue, then that inevitably, you know, that's what, you know, say guns and um, abortion have become on so many people in their life. You know, there's like, I don't care what, you know, if you're not in my same world on these, then I don't, you know, that's all I'm voting for. Um, so that, you know, we need to up the importance of climate action. Um, but the reality is at Protect Our Winners, we focus on the middle and we focus on the non-voters and we try to explain to them that climate change is on the ballot. And um, and if you want clean air, clean water and a healthy planet, then you, you know, we have a voter guide and you have to vote this way. And 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 to be clear, Protect Our Winners is a bipartisan organization focused on climate change and we work really hard to try to bring that um those conservative what you know in the past have really been these unicorns which are conservatives that want climate action but um we're seeing a shift uh no doubt about it the problem is is we need real urgency on climate action science is crystal clear on that and we are going towards clean energy. It's the cheapest form of um, new energy to bring online. It creates a ton of jobs. But our focus needs to be in speeding up this transition. What do you feel like POW's biggest accomplishment has been? I know, you know, in the world of climate activism, there's not a lot of wins when, you know, we look at a world that is transforming uh in terms of its climate in the way that it is. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it's, it has, we have not popped a lot of champagne in the, um, <laughs> world of climate action. We've largely been getting out executed, outspent, um, by the extraction industry. Um, but you know, at protect our winners, we really focus on what, um, these mountain swing states where a couple thousand votes could make the difference between a climate uh, champion or a climate denier in office. And not to say that we brought um, every one of those swing votes, but we've definitely kind of brought our, whether it's a couple hundred or a couple thousand to that table, um, these, again, whether it's a traditional non-voter um, or a, you know, more of a middle of the road conservative that I've had them say to me, you know, like first time ever I voted, you know, um, I, I voted specifically for, for this climate champion and, you know, and I switch political parties to do so. Are there any candidates you can point to where you feel like you made the difference? I mean, it's really, um, I can't say definitively. I mean, I would say uh, in Montana, that was a really tight race for Tester to get reelected. Mm -hmm. And that one came down to, you know, a thousand or a couple thousand votes. And we spent, I mean, we had, we've spent years in that state and a ton of energy and built um, coalitions there. So that was an example of, um, 
you know, again, I, I, I hate to definitively say one thing or another, but, you know, feel like we played a role in that for sure. Mm -hmm. You uh, recently made a film uh, with some writers of color. And um, why did you feel like that was important to do in a, you know, in a sport that has been overwhelmingly white? What were you trying to do there? Yeah, I mean, I so this film Mountain Revelations um, is streaming now on Outside Plus. It's, um, I mean, at the heart of it is I wanted to learn. Like, how have we made so little progress on diversifying the outdoors? Is at the root of it, and in the film, is really me as the student to really understand that, and um, and because we you know, as you said, it's like, we've made such little headway on diversifying the sport. And I think it's, um, you know, it's easy to point to the economic barriers, but that's also a little bit of a, of a cop out. Um, and so you'll see in this film, uh, you know, I think we, we definitely don't solve, you know, these are long, these are issues that have been going on for a long time. I mean, if you go back, to the birth of the national parks and the early advertising. I mean, not even the early advertising. I mean, it wasn't until recently that, you know, it was like every ad, every pamphlet um, was, you know, white families enjoying the outdoors. And so it's just, you know, one small example of things that we're seeing everywhere and have seen this consistency um, in the outdoor community. And I don't think that, um, it's been, it, especially in the last, whatever, you know, in my lifetime, I don't think it's been this purposeful, um, Hey, let's keep people of color out of the outdoors, but it's just inevitably been that way. And I think Ryan Hudson, the black snowboarder in the film sums it up well is where he said, you know, these sports are passed down generationally and we're still struggling to get that first generation of people of color, um, in the outdoors. Here in New England, uh, there is talk that half of the ski resorts that we have today will not be here or not be viable in by 2050, which isn't all that far away. It's only 30 years away. What do you think riding and the snow sports world will look like in 30 years when your kids are inheriting this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot less. The low elevation resorts we know are in great jeopardy. Um, I think we're, we're already seeing this extreme uh, fluctuation of, of weather. So it's kind of like extreme drought, extreme blizzard. Um, so it's kind of the consistencies of winter it just aren't there. Um, but, the you know, the reality is as I, you know, I protect our winners when I started or right away, I was like, just had to learn to cold call, um, climate specialists and scientists and, and, um, and surround myself with the smartest people in that realm. And pretty quickly, what I realized is, um, or, you know, you come to understand that if we don't have snow to operate, uh, chairlifts, the reality is the least of our worries is whether or not we get to slide down on the, on a mountain on snow is, is, is as like heartbreaking that is for me. Um, 
you know, in the West, for example, 70, 80% of our water uh, it comes from snowpack, which grows a significant amount of our country's uh, fruits and vegetables. And so the ripple effects of no snow in the mountains are, di- are so dire on all of society. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Jeremy Jones, thanks so much for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Awesome. Uh, appreciate the opportunity and and to kind of have my brain go to Vermont. I um, What a beautiful place. And um, yeah, thank you. Glad to have you back. <laughs> Cheers. That does it for this Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.